Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Benedict Cumberbatch. He is, of course, one of the biggest actors around. He was nominated for an Academy Award for his role as Alan Turing in 2014's The Imitation Game. He plays Doctor Strange in the Marvel movies, including the brand new Spider-Man No Way Home. He's also in the Western Power of the Dog, which is playing in theaters and streaming now on Netflix. In 2010, Cumberbatch got the title part on the BBC's modern-day Sherlock Holmes reboot, called Sherlock. The show ended up being a breakthrough for him. He earned a bunch of awards nominations. Critics loved him. When he and I talked in 2012, it was on the heels of Sherlock's second series. We talked about the challenge he faced when taking on the role, because, I mean, how many other characters have been on screen more times than Sherlock Holmes? He and I also talked about his harrowing experience being kidnapped and robbed while on set abroad. It's a great conversation, one I'm excited to share with you again. Let's get into it. Benedict Cumberbatch, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be on the show. Your parents uh, have been working actors for pretty much all of your life. Yes. Um, But neither of them has ever been a major star um so i imagine that you've you've gotten to see that especially as a kid you got to see sort of some of the fruits of what it's like to be a working actor which is to say that you know when you've got a gig especially in film or television it pays well it's a great job um it's very fulfilling but also that you know someone else has to sign off on you working and it has to happen, you know, every three months if you're working on film and television often. Um, and that if no one is casting you, then you are not working for money. Yeah. And I, I wonder what that was like for you as a kid. And, and if the idea of, of acting seemed cool and glamorous to you or it seemed like a bummer. Uh both at times i think i mean a mixture and, and that's that's the way it is it was a you know i, I didn't walk into this with any uh, need for a reality check or preconceptions as to it all being you know a, a glittering ascendancy to uh, the stars it's just kind of really honestly about hard grind uh faith in the people you work with and hopefully the people that are trying to get you the work and um and some certain professional courtesy. And I know this sounds obvious. I often get criticized by fans for being obvious in interviews. But if you've not been an actor before, you, you need to hear this sometimes. And I, I think mum and dad were wonderful at giving me every opportunity to do anything but be an actor, to avoid the peripatetic nature, to be uh, completely beholden to your career rather than your lifestyle or your family choices or any other kind of form of shaping your life. Your one and sole um, aim was to be around and available for work and try and get it in order to pay the bills. I, I don't know if this is anything to do with what I'm saying because I'm, I'm thinking about this as I'm going along. I'm not making it up. This is what I think, but I haven't said it for a while. I, I think, um, you know, when people say, oh, he's uh, the rising star, Benedict Cumberbatch. I've been rising for about 10 years now. People have been saying that for me. And long may that continue. I mean, if, I, if, I, <laughs> if, if I've got to the top, I've only got one way to get back and that's down. So, you know, <laughs> I'm very happy with being called that. 
Uh, and that, yeah, it's all about the work for me. It, it, it's just about the quality of the work, who I get to work with and, and being in work. And I, I'm so spoiled on all fronts. So I work very hard at trying to, to justify people's faith in me. Did seeing your parents' example help you imagine what kind of actor's life you wanted to have when you decided to become an actor? Um, well, no, and it would be unfair to judge them in comparison because the landscape's so different now. Uh, it's, a, it's a far more open field, which is great, but there's even more of us uh, in surplus to requirement than there were in their time. And uh, I think the, the kind of route that, that a lot of their peers have taken, uh, whether it be McKellen, Dench, um, the, the Red Graves, you know, it, all of whom, you know, well, mum was at school with Judy. She was at Central Drama School with her and I think Maggie Smith. I might have got that wrong. I think Maggie Smith might have been there a bit before. But, you know, a great, great stable of talent uh, at the same time as mum was starting out and doing very well commercially. And they, they, they at that time, the ones that have had the longevity that mum wishes she'd had by doing more classical roles, did have that because they, they had these huge breaks and wonderful roles in their youth at the RSC and the National Theatre and other subsidised theatre companies or independents, as well as commercial theatre and television and film. So people would structure a career through theatre work that would then translate onto the small screen then the big screen. And while that still happens, you can now wake up to being 15, say, I want to be an actor and do a casting and get a lead gig in a Harry Potter film or a you know, a massive franchise and that's your life really. You know, it's just incredible how you can kind of jump to a very accelerated point in our profession. And it sort of points out the truth of it that what what everyone's aiming for is very different and you're never going to be aiming towards one point. There'll be better moments and worse moments. There are always going to be ups and downs, but longevity is the only thing I'm interested in. I want to do this for as long as I can because I, I absolutely love it. I've been doing it for 10 years now and I still get a kick out of the fact that I've been paid to do it. And, uh, you know, long may that continue. Were there things that you were scared of when you decided to become an actor? Yeah, a, a little bit, but I went into it with the confidence of a generation that had done it before. But like I said, it was hard to compare. So I, I just set out to try and, um, I don't know, give a have a variety of work. I, I enjoyed being, uh, you know, an impersonator and a bit of a show off at school. And that got sort of tailored into taking responsibility. I, you know, telling a story to an audience where you had to focus that, that showing off capacity. And then I got very into the idea of um, exploring different realities and different characters and different traits and ages and size and shapes. And, you know, I, that, that to me is, 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 is the thrill of, of, of it or was at the beginning, this, this idea of uh, transformation. And then, and then I don't know, I, you move into a softer territory when you enter the marketplace because you have to market yourself as you are. You can't go in all singing, all dancing. It kind of scares people to put their backs against the wall and run out the building screaming. But you, if you if you just, you know, when you begin, you are, you look and sound the way you look and that's the sort of casting mold you begin with. And then you can kind of spread your wings a bit in the other direction. So I, I was aware, I guess, to get back to your question, that um, I wanted to appeal to as wider employment base as possible, I guess. So whether that be a cross medium thing or whether it be um, playing as wide a variety of characters in those mediums as possible. I, that was, that was kind of my concern, not because they didn't, but just because I had the opportunity to do that. And uh, uh, I really have been, been spoiled by that. And um, so I just, I think I went into it very prepared, um, you know, for, for, for the failings and vagaries of the profession and, and just applied myself, hopefully, you know, with the kind of professionalism that would make them proud and uh, people that are their peers who I've worked with, um, you know, happy to, to work with me and, and say, oh, that's Wanda and Tim's son, you know. And that's, yeah, that's that's kind of what I started out with. They, 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 were, they were very, they are very good role models for how to live a life as a, as a working actor. So 
um, you know, I owe a lot to them. Even more with Benedict Cumberbatch after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we are replaying my conversation with actor Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays Doctor Strange in the new Marvel movie Spider-Man No Way Home and stars alongside Kirsten Dunst in the new Western The Power of the Dog. When I talked with Cumberbatch in 2012, he'd just wrapped the second series of the BBC show Sherlock. It was a breakout performance for Cumberbatch, one that earned him a Primetime Emmy Award for outstanding lead actor in a miniseries or movie. Let's get back into it. Let's talk about Sherlock. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes, depending on your definition of fictional character, mm. I think that um, God, Jesus, and Santa Claus are, are appear in more films and television shows than Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but um, Only just. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes has been in hundreds of films and television yeah. programs portrayed by dozens of actors and when you audition for this role you're running up against not just you know basil rathbone or whatever but uh, this accumulation of, of cruft of hundreds of people yeah um and ideas of hundreds of people mm. how can you when you get the sides for an audition for a part like that how can you do anything that's not just a pastiche of your ideas of what this guy is? How do you find something that's actual in that? That's a good question. Um, well, what did I do? I I saw the strengths of their script. I saw what they were wanting to bring to life. Uh, but yeah, you're entering a pantheon of what seventy plus actors have already trodden in in in, in the footsteps of that role. I, but you can't. You just disassociate with all that. It's a little bit like going for any audition. You you walk into the room and you forget the fact that you've just left a waiting room with five other people who are equally, if not better, suited for the part than you. And you think I'm the only person they're seeing today, and that's all that matters is what happens now. Because you can't take on that baggage. You know, any any level of performance and craft in 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 the performing arts is about being present in a moment. And I think while there are some massive technical uh, things to master with Holmes, feats of memory and line learning, which I always struggle with, and uh, you know the the, the, the physical techni technicalities of hitting a mark, speaking at that that pace, and uh, the, the alacrity of his is his movement, and as well as his intellect, you know, all of that requires a certain amount of technical skill. But you you still the best takes, the ones that work, are the ones where you that just happens, and it's then it's a given, and something fresh occurs. Christ, I mean, we had a bit of a blank canvas with this one. It's 21st century, after all. And while Holmes is a modern man and was, you know, up to his eyeballs in cutting-edge um, science and um, the burgeoning technology of, of science, you know, criminal pathology in, in his original state, you know. He's always pouring one beaker into another beaker. Well, you know, that's a bit of that going on, exactly. But, you know, my point is that, you know, there's, you know, he he's somebody who 
there's a lot to draw parallels with in modern life um, from the original as there is obviously having him in modern life. There's a lot that I can use that's modern that's going to make it feel as if it is a fresh take on Holmes. And also I think what they thought I'd lend to it, which is true because of the way I look and I have a high neck and, you know, I've done stuff in period costumes before, is is that, you know, I, I've got a slightly old world, um, old soul, otherworldly quality, um, which sort of marries that, that junction between someone who is Victorian, who we are honouring as a Victorian, hero even though he's playing with an iphone and surfing the net and you know um performing a million um uh, sort of social and modern media functions in a, in the blink of an eye i i i guess that was it really i guess that was it it was just going in with confidence the confidence that that character required and the script and the updating of it required the confidence of sherlock holmes is more than just confidence it comes from the fact that he essentially lives in a different world than everyone else who surrounds him. Even the person that he relates to most, which is Dr. Watson, he still is he still is in his own world, and his confidence is really just a matter of almost floating above or dazzling above everyone else. It's like a crazy headlong dash in a through space. Yeah, it is. It's something sort of slightly other than human. I mean, what it is really is that he's making synaptical connections faster than we can think, but he's verbalizing them at the same time. So he is speaking at a a speed of thought, which is pretty daunting to most people, let alone that he can structure language around it to communicate and explain it. And I think what he ciphers out of his life, much to the cost, and that's a lot of what um, this this second series, the story arc of, of his development is, is these obstructions as he sees them to being robotic in his ability to solve things logically and have control and power through being able to organize and understand the world logically. And then he meets his polarity in Moriarty, who is all about trying to explain that there is no logic, there is no control, there is only chaos, and I am going to bring about chaos and you will have to embrace it because you need me. Or if you don't, you have to fight it, but either way, you need me. And I I think that's that's kind of... You know what? What he achieves, Sherlock, is almost superhuman. But actually, what I love about him as a hero and as an iconic hero, and one that took with the first series children back to the original books to read him and and love him as a hero in the modern world or in the in the original books in in the Victorian world, is the fact that it's achievable. It was based on a doctor that 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 you know um, Conan Doyle knew who who formed these massive. Uh, well, narratives really out of sporadic uh, detail that were sewn together to form fact of deduction, to to, to bring together a point of view or an understanding. You know, an A to B commute, uh, commute with Sherlock Holmes in London is suddenly a pop-up book of adventure and possibility. It's he, he turns the world into something rich with narrative. And that's why he works. That's why he still works. That's why lo- stories love story writers love to use him because he's a gift to story writers. He is he carries around so many stories and what he sees. You can watch one series or one episode of ours, and uh, you think, you know, you, you gosh, so much happened. It's, sometimes an awful lot doesn't happen because it's about what is perceived to have happened through this man. He makes these massive leaps which cut out huge needs for you know slow procedural bit by bit oh yeah that's right oh that's right that's right he just gets it all in the blink of an eye and it's th- it's just thrilling to go on a ride with him but what i do like about the superhuman quality is actually in a weird way a how being human is his gravity and actually what i think this series is also about is, is discovering that that's a strength that feelings emotions 
things that he has ostracized himself uh, from in order to protect, maintain, and master this cold, calculating, logical machine that he wants to be are actually sources of strength for that cold, calculating, logical machine because he still has to have an understanding of humanity in order to control it or, or save it or whatever it is that he is a as an ego wants to achieve. One of the things that I found the most compelling about the relationship between Watson and Holmes um, is that uh, Wat, uh, that Watson, as, as portrayed by Martin Freeman, is a, a veteran. He's an army doctor, as in yes. the stories. Yeah, and he's um, struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, and um, you know, PTSD is something that can it, it can cause tremendous difficulties in relating to others that's one of the greatest um challenges that people with PTSD suffer from and um you know i it's it's you know it's very vivid for me because i grew up i grew up in a family with a father who was disabled by service related PTSD and um you know, watching these two characters who each in their own way is struggling to find are are struggling to find a way to relate to each other and mm. to the world mm. um is it's kind of is moving, a, isn't it? I mean it's it's kind of moving. And it's uh, in a way, you know, jokes aside about what the sexuality or implied sexuality of either of them. I mean, Christ, John's a ladies' man and he's asexual until he meets Irene Adler and then something switches on in him which he thought he had control over. But I, I I I agree with I think what you were, you were pointing out, which is that they are two men find, trying to find a context in society, and both have uh, one through something imposed, I guess, by the trauma of being in, in the theatre of war, and the other self-imposed have these um, elements that make them both outsiders. So they find a community with each other and a source of strength from each other, and. That's that's very touching to me, and I think you know I I spoke to a lot of um, people, well, two two or three people particularly at, um, at, at an awards ceremony, GQ, GQ Awards this year, who were so grateful to Martin's performance and portrayal of Watson because you know while it's great fun and it's distracting and it's good fun telly for them to watch, they felt that something was being represented. Now, of course, with his character, it's not. It's not a disability through an IED. It's not a. It's not a trauma that's marked him physically. He has a sort of socio, uh, sociopathic, a so psychosomatic associated wound, uh, which you know Sherlock gets very very early on, um, as not being to do with his leg, but something else. Uh, what his problem is is that he, in a sort of Travis Bickle vein, I guess, can't reassimilate with society because he actually misses the thrill of the theatre of war, and that's a very dark and awkward and difficult. Um, thing to confess to, which I guess is why it's sort of surfaces as nightmares and and the limp because you're 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 suppressing a desire to go back into combat for the, thr the thrill of being that adrenalized by knowing your life is uh, held in the balance by a, a thread and you know and your colleagues around you and your your entire situation is constantly insecure. I mean that's quite something to admit to actually enjoying. And I think it's sort of shameful in a way to some people. Um, but, you know, it's born out of service and dignity and honor and, and being a good soldier, which are all qualities that sh should be anything but shameful. And I think, you know, an awful lot of people coming back from service in the wars that, that we're fighting at the moment and have been fighting over the last 10 years. Um, 
I have, have a huge problem with with assimilating uh, back into a society that views them as doing a necessary job, but as a little bit off put by the idea that you know they they might have killed people or experienced things which are beyond their understanding. And you know, what, was it really a legal war? And all, all the politics that confuse the basic, pure fact of being a soldier, which is just well, from my point of view, unfathomably hard. I don't know how people do it. And it's uh, it's you know, people talk about heroics and uh, lists of people and all sorts of nonsense which is going on at the moment with me and I, I just think it's embarrassing because you think of the people who deliver our security whether they're fighting abroad whether they're policing our borders here whether people who take care of the elderly who are single mums people who are teaching the underprivileged in our world who are doctoring areas in the there, there's a huge body of heroism going on all the time so um, it's very nice that we have a character that's 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 fully ingrained in that world, and that Sherlock has a real respect and understanding of of Watson's military um, background uh, capabilities, and um, that, that you know that's meted out in the first instant they meet, and obviously by the end of that episode, for those who haven't seen it, I won't say anything, but basically Sherlock owes his life to Watson, and that's the bond that that that, that bears them through all the highs and lows of living with. A very difficult flatmate, which alone is a heroic feat on, Sherlock, on Watson's part. I think I would not like to live with Sherlock. But anyway, there we go. I prefer my fridge to be clean of fingers and heads, have more fresh lettuce in the uh, crisper drawer and stuff like that. Even more with Benedict Cumberbatch still to come after the break. He'll talk about what he learned after being carjacked, abducted, and left for dead in the trunk of a car. All of which really happened. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Airbnb. Millions of people earn extra income by hosting their extra space on Airbnb. Income that can help with home renovations, paying for vacations, or saving for retirement. Maybe you have questions about whether hosting might be right for you. You can now ask a super host and get free one-on-one help from Airbnb's most experienced hosts. Go to airbnb.com slash askasuperhost and start asking. Hi, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. And the three of us host The Flophouse. It's a podcast where we watch a new bad movie and then we talk about it. Dan, you say it's hosted by the three of us. We've had a lot of great guest co-hosts like Gillian Flynn, Jamel Bowie, John Hodgman, Jessica Williams, Wyatt Cenac, Joe Bob Briggs, Josh Gondelman, Roman Mars. Yeah, and you said new movies. But what about the time we did Meatballs 2? Okay, okay, yeah. Sometimes we do older movies and sometimes we have guests, but mostly it's about us talking about like recent bad movies. And don't forget about the ones where I made you do a role-playing game where you played cartoon dogs. All right, yeah. But... Shouldn't a promo be a really simple explanation about what our show's about? So, what's the show about, Dan? What's it about? <sighs> what's it about? It's about friendship, all right? It's about our friendship and how we love each other. The Flophouse. It's a podcast mostly about bad movies on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Benedict Cumberbatch. Let's get back into it. I want to ask you a, a, a sort of a personal question, sure. um, and you can you can answer this to the extent that you feel comfortable. Sure. Um, uh, quite a, quite a while ago, you were uh, you were carjacked and abducted. Yeah. In um, in South Africa while shooting a, a entirely different project. This was yeah, in two thousand four, right. I believe. Yeah. Um, and you know the the trauma associated with that i can only i can only presume must have been tremendous um 
And I wonder how, how going through that experience affected your life. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, it, it, there's one minute where I can empathize with, with Sherlock's impatience. I think it made me for a while, that was the hardest thing for anyone around me to deal with, was that I, I yearned for a life less ordinary with every second I had to breathe because I came face to face with some very plain facts. One is that you die on your own. No matter who you're with or who you're leaving behind, you have to face death on your own. And also the fact that I was too young to die uh, made me uh, angry to live, if that makes any kind of a sense. So I, I, I had a sort of profound insight, really, and a fantastic dinner party anecdote at the hands of these people who, you know, it could have been a lot worse. I could have been left with scars, physical and, and emotionally, that, that could have been a lot worse. I wasn't, um, I wasn't beaten up. I was pushed around a bit, but and tied up and put in the boot of a car as well as the side of the road. But and had a gun put to my head. But I wasn't pistol whipped. I wasn't beaten with a stick. I wasn't kicked. I wasn't raped. I wasn't uh, cut. You know, it was an awful lot that didn't happen that I can be thankful for because ultimately it was a small event in a very big country. And the next day there was a newspaper headline to give perspective and immediately rationalise what had happened to us and. And, uh, you know, give a context for how uh, this is something to be uh, got over rather than be traumatized by. A man was hijacked, carjacked at the side of, uh, uh, not at the side of the road, at a crossing. And the guy panicked and shot him before he even knew what was in the car. And there was a two rand coin, which is, I mean, it's it's decimal points. Uh, doesn't even value a cent and a lighter. That was all that was in his car. There was the car and the guy got caught and I don't even know if he was shot as well or whether he was taken down. But um, it, it was it was a very, very big event in my life. But um, it's one that I've learned from rather than being traumatized from. I went to see a counselor the minute after it happened. We had that on offer and one of the actors I was with didn't and the other actress did. And I think it was harder for them. Um, and I'm not going to speak for them on, on, on this program. But um, I think, you know, the main way it changed me was it made me, I, I in the immediate um, aftermath was that I um, well I was I cried the first time I felt the sun on my face the next day uh, uh, you know there were a lot of uh, sort of almost born again resurrected feelings this thing of the preciousness and wonderful and beauty uh, that is life I mean it's just such a blessing and I know it sounds a bit soppy but when you've come near death you you really 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 learn to reevaluate it and appreciate it and that's a great thing to get in your 20s because you start you know using your 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 vivacity not to 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 kick against the idea of oh i'm i'm immortal there's no such thing as mortality but to embrace your your mortality and uh take control of it so i went off and skydive and i swam with sharks and i did lots of kind of crazy adrenaline field stuff but i also traveled on my own for a month afterwards around namibia and cape town and sat in it, sat in my feelings, pondered it, dwelled on it, moved around in it, dismissed it, came back to it. You know, it's always there. And I, I'm fine talking about it. It's it's a exhausting anecdote. Um, I, I'm not going to excuse my swearing there because it, it's, it's a really big story to go into. Seems reasonable. Uh, it is. In this instance, I think you can bleep me out on that. And I think people might understand. It's It's a big... It's a big story and and it's a wonderful one to tell. But I do kind of uh, feel a bit pale and worn after going through it. But... It's not something, I don't know, I've, I, you know, it, it, I've had near-death experiences since then, and, and that's obviously been the most acute one, I should say, um, I would say rather. Um, but I, I've got nothing that, other than good out of it, really. I think the the positive drive you get out of wanting to live a life less ordinary has borne fruit. I think, um, I you know, I quelled the other things in me that that sort of 
knot my equilibrium or calm about a bit. I've kind of dealt with a lot of those. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of it happened not for a reason because I don't think these things do. It just, I was in that place at that time. Um, but it was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And it's, it, it's definitely shaped part of who I am. Were you able to find a way to, um, to find e- equilibrium again? Yeah, I mean, I had the job for a start, so I had to focus on a very different reality and set of circumstances to my own. And that was a massive, as it is in an actor's life, it's a massive headspace to occupy. Um, and then to settle the equilibrium, yeah, it took time. Of course it took time. Um, and, you know, I struggled with it and with the other two actors. And, you know, you go through, well, I don't know that you in general go through one ghoster in general, but I certainly went through the thing of... Um, wow, I need inoculating, I need to just be knocked out, I'll, you know, um, drink a lot of whiskey and take a sleeping pill. Uh, Then I got ill because I came off the sleeping pill and then that day passed and then I was completely fine again. That was, I I had a very sort of accelerated experience on the night and a very accelerated recovery. And I went to see the counselor twice. The second time he says, you're you're more than fine. You are, you're a strong man, you're going to be good. And uh, I believed him and he's right, (laughs) thank God. Um, but you know, yeah, of course it's, it's, it, it throws you, but it takes you a while to, I mean, extraordinary things happen on that. And I don't know how much detail you've read about it, but one of the things that happened was as we found our salvation in this roadside curio shop that was run off the back of this uh, other drive through, um, safari park where all these cooperatives have been making woven baskets and fantastic, beautiful, 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 original artifacts, carvings and, um, bowls made out of wires and recycled beads and just extraordinary objects and it was run by about three or four women who were in this hut and there was there were two or three men standing guard because it was a roadside truck stop for the night so people would come and you know get some coca-cola or whatever or or just relieve themselves and have a gossip and that was our that was the 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 light on the horizon we ran to after we discovered that we were actually finally left alone tied at the side of the road and they'd gone and when i was there i had uh my shoelace was still tied around my right hand. I hadn't bothered untying it. And as I was telling the story and these women were clucking and tutting and ticking and just, and crying and, and, and shaking their head saying, for shame, for shame, they steal from us too. They steal from the poor. It's so bad. We're so sorry. This happened to you in our country. It was profoundly moving. And then to add to that, this hand came out, this black hand came out and untied uh, the thing that had been used for my bondage and my white flesh. And the whole thing just, snowballed in my head everything 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 we've well, whites have done to that culture and it, it, just the whole thing just suddenly smashed in and it was a profoundly moving moment that and, and i looked up into this man's face having been scared by the men that were there initially because could they be part of the gang because obviously everybody i know especially because we had our head to the ground and our, our eyes our eyes averted from their face because they didn't want us to if you identify them it's you're far more likely target for a killing um, so you, you, you practice hard at not witnessing what's going on and, um, to be able to look into a black man's face in, in the night in South Africa and say, thank you with tears running down your face as he takes away this final sort of token, I guess, of, of the night's, um, the trauma. It was, that was wonderful. And I, that was a huge part of the healing. And I wrote to him soon afterwards to explain that to him. And, um, he understood exactly what I meant. Well, yeah. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show, Benedict. It no, it's was a pleasure. Really nice to talk to you. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope that was all right. Benedict Cumberbatch from 2012 
If you haven't seen Sherlock from the BBC, it is a great fun show. You can download all four series through Apple, Amazon, or Google Play. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in Los Angeles, I am headed off to take a stick shift driving lesson. I've only driven automatics. Please don't judge me. Uh, but hopefully we'll learn quick. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffitt. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.